this week on the Roommates Podcast. It can't be a complete mystery. You can't be sitting here listening to me or to you and say, what is that? I mean, it's an intellectual concept. I have a higher self, but you have no, it doesn't mean anything to you personally. It has to mean something to you personally. And usually when you were a child, somehow, or even when you were older, you have moments where you you did actually bear down and work on something. You did actually overcome your weaknesses. You got tired of lying around the house. You felt unsatisfied by playing games all day. You read a book and suddenly you were stimulated and it excited you. You have to be able to look back on those moments where that higher self came out. What's good, everybody? This week's podcast is brought to you guys by our sponsors over at Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and more. So whether you're returning to a lifelong passion, challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone, or simply exploring something new, Skillshare has classes just for you, and we've been telling you guys so much this year make sure you hop on skillshare so many dope amazing classes you guys will love it so be sure to join the millions of people on skillshare today with a special offer for the roommate community you guys get two free months of skillshare premium use the offer code roommates at checkout go to skillshare.com roommates two free months of skillshare premium check it out trust me guys you won't be disappointed with all the things that you'll be able to learn Yo, what's good, everybody? This is Hafiz, and guess what, guys? We are in the lovely city of Los Angeles, California, and my favorite thing about Los Angeles, California is while everybody in New York City is freezing (laughs) and everybody in Wisconsin and Detroit and all these northern states are freezing to death, (laughs) you come to the lovely city of Los Angeles, and it is 70 and sunny, and I am happy. (laughs) But... It's not about me today. It's about our newest, newest roommate. And guys, this is somebody who a lot of people have reached out to me and told me, you need to get this guy on the show. There's a very, very special somebody who I know who told me that this book was her, I mean, this author was one of her favorite authors and his book was her favorite book of all time. So I said, yo, if that's the case, I have to get this guy on the show. So guys, please, please welcome to the show, the one and only Robert Green. Thank you for having my Hafiz. I'm very honored to be on your show. Thank you I'm so much. I'm glad you Robert. enjoy the weather here. <laughs> Man, it is beautiful. Have you lived anywhere else? Yeah, I've lived in New York. I went to university in Wisconsin. So I Which school in Wisconsin? Madison, University of Wisconsin, Madison. Ba- you're a Badger. Yeah. Okay. You, you didn't go there. No. I didn't go there, but when I used to play college football on um, my Xbox, <laughs> my favorite oh. team was the University of Wisconsin. So I'm a big University of Wisconsin fan. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, when I went there, they, they were awful at football. They were like always in last place mm. and everything. Now they're they're pretty good yeah yeah man i i was a big i actually really wanted to go to the university of wisconsin oh really but it was so far away <laughs> and then it uh, is really cold yes 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 i'm yes. from california born and raised here so it was quite a shock the cold weather you know i was actually born in new york city uh-huh. so people would assume that i'm used to the cold but i'm not <laughs> uh-huh. what part of new york i was born in staten island 
Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty unique. Not many people can say that. Yeah. So my family's from Nigeria. So a lot uh -huh. of the, you know, obviously a lot of the immigrant population moved to Staten Island. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of immigrant population wow. moved to Staten Island because, you know, it was affordable, uh -huh. you know, semi-decent schools, better yeah. than, you know, some of the New York City public school systems. Uh -huh. And yeah, so we moved there and we lived there for 11 years. And then my wow. family saw the opportunity that was expanding in Atlanta, Georgia. And then we decided to move on down there. Wow. And you like it there. Huh? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's growing on me. It's growing, it's on, growing me. on me. Yeah. Which one, obviously, is a common sense answer, but which one do you prefer, Los Angeles or New York? Well, I love New York. Um, Where'd you I, live in New York? I lived in the East Village, and then I lived in Brooklyn. Okay. Park Slope, Fort Greene. I don't know if you know that those parts of Brooklyn. I, I know where, um, what was the first place you said again? Park Slope. East Village. East Village, yeah. Manhattan. Yep. Yeah, um, but I'm talking about New York in the early 80s, mm. uh, probably well before you were born. <laughs> and it was a much different place than it is now. Mm. It was a little bit dangerous, very gritty, very urban, not nearly as, as you know clean as it is now. Yeah. And there was a lot of and that's crime. saying something because it's really dirty when I go there now. Oh, really? <laughs> so it's way cleaner. If oh, it's cleaner my God. than <laughs> now, now it looks like Disneyland to me. <laughs> wow. So it was a much different era, you know. It was an exciting era, a lot of interesting things going on culturally. But it was it had an edge to it that doesn't have anymore. I love New York a lot. Um, and I like LA. The only thing I would live in New York except I like the weather here and mm -hmm. I like being around mountains and oh the scenery is so beautiful yeah scenery is so beautiful so robert i know who you are so for our audience who, who doesn't know who you who you are can you give them a bit of an elevator pitch about who you are and what you do well i'm a writer uh i've written six books my first book was the 48 laws of power that was sort of my biggest selling book my most popular book came out in 1998 um, and since then i've written the art of seduction the 33 Strategies of War. I wrote a book with 50 Cent, the rapper, called The 50th Law. Then I did Mastery, and now I have The Laws of Human Nature. And, uh, you know, my books are kind of about, about strategy, how to, how to, you know, I'm, I start with the premise that the world is sort of a difficult, competitive place. People can be brutal, people can be difficult. And I'm arming readers with knowledge on how to navigate what can sometimes be a very difficult world and how to figure out what you're meant to do in life and how to realize your goals, etc. So it's kind of like life strategies, but I mix a lot of history and stories in there. Um, and, you know, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I also do consulting with people in various areas, uh, sports, athletes, entertainment people, political people. So that's another aspect to my life, but I'm basically a writer. That's that's thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And what's really interesting about your first book, The 48 Laws of Power, is that it became somewhat of a Bible <laughs> for so many people, especially from my experience in the black community. Yeah. Like they love your book. <laughs> like no, no. I don't know if it's the power, what it is, but there's a lot of individuals in the black community. They just they just yeah. they just love your book so much i think one of the um i was hearing how in some prisons your book is so popular they banned it yeah, they did. <laughs> and so why do you think not just in the black community but why do you think so many people were gravitating towards the 48 laws of power 
Well, um, I think it's because I'm honest. I, I tell the truth. I don't try and sugarcoat things. A lot of there's a lot of bullshit in the world today. People try when they write self-help books. They generally like to flatter the reader and say, you know, we're all basically good. <clears throat> we're all on the same side. This is how you should be a good leader. This is how you should be a good employee, etc. And my experience isn't like that. My experience is that the world is very difficult sometimes. And there are people who are very manipulative out there. And my problem was I was quite naive personally in dealing with it because nobody prepares you for that kind of harsh side of life. You know, you, you graduate university and you're full of all these ideas and ideals. And then you enter the work world and you go, oh, I wasn't expecting this. And um, so I think people really appreciate the honesty, you know, and they kind of enjoy the slight sort of violence to my book or the kind of edge that I bring to it. But I don't think, I don't think there's anything else out there like it, you know. That's the other thing, because I include a lot of his stories from history, but I have the things on the margins, stories on the margins. I'm trying to inundate the reader in this sort of world of power and educate you on how to stop being so naive. And um, I know, like, when I worked with 50 Cent, for instance, you know, when we did a book together, when I first met him, he told me, you know, I... I grew up on the streets of Southside, Queens. I was a drug dealer. I saw a lot of shit. I saw a lot of really nasty stuff. But nothing prepared me for the music business. Nothing at all. And he said the 48 Laws of Power really opened my eyes to what's really going on in the executive branches in the music industry, which is a pretty shark-infested environment. So I think basically the honesty, the kind of brutal honesty that I bring to the subject, I think is a lot of appeal to people. So what's really interesting about what you shared is how did you grow up before, before I jump into that? Like, what was your childhood like? So I'm, I'm, I'm hearing some similarities from our two childhoods, but I want to make sure I'm certain. Well, I grew up um, kind of middle class. My father was basically just a, a salesman. Um, he sold chemical supplies here in Los Angeles. And... Um, I had a very nice childhood. I grew up in uh, where there was like hills and played a lot. I was My parents didn't really supervise me a lot. I was on my own. I mean, I tell people stories like when I was 11 years old, I would ride my bicycle all the way down to the beach by myself. You know, nobody now would, have, would ever let their kids do that because <laughs> that was a pretty far bicycle yeah. ride. You know, so I was unsupervised. I played with friends. We, I, had a, I had a good childhood. You know, I, I, I look back on it very fondly. Um, and, you know, I it wasn't the closest family in the world, but my parents were very loving, and they pushed me very hard to, to do well in school. But there was nothing, you know, it's, I had nowhere near like the, uh, the, the childhood of somebody like 50 or people who had it hard in life. I mean, we weren't wealthy, but we, it was a comfortable, comfortable life here. And that's exactly what I thought you were going to say. Oh, really? Yes. I thought you were going to expect that my father was a drug dealer. Oh, no, 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 no. Because what you, what you communicated was you said that you grew up in a very, what I interpreted, a kind, healthy environment. Yeah. And you were naive to yeah. the ruthlessness of the world. Yeah. And so when, when you communicated that to me, that that reminded me of what my dad has always told me. Oh, what was that? So my dad... 
is an immigrant. Like I said, he came to Nigeria, yeah. came from Nigeria to America to provide a better life right. for his children. Right. And my dad realized that where he was from in Nigeria was a whole different ball game than the environment he was raising his children in. Uh-huh. Like you said, middle class. We weren't rich, but we lived very comfortably. Uh-huh. Both, you know, parents were working hard, uh-huh. raised with a lot of good values and uh-huh. virtues. But my dad constantly told us yeah. that the world outside is not like the world in your home. <laughs> yeah. and That's very wh- smart. <laughs> exactly. And so while he gave us the love and support and kindness in the home, he constantly reiterated the importance of, hey, when you go into the real world, there's lions and tigers and bears out there. Yeah. And you must be prepared for them because they're not going to be like your parents. And he, he knew that growing up in Nigeria or living and, in Nigeria. Exactly. So he knew that from growing up in Nigeria, and especially coming to America. Yeah. Because he, when my dad first came to America, he came he, he came to Brooklyn. Uh-huh. And so Brooklyn in the 80s, you know. Well, that, that's where I was. Exactly. That's where you were. That was the, the rough. Do, in, the do you know where he was in Brooklyn? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't yeah. tell you. But, I mean, he had no money when he came. So yeah. I can only imagine, you know, yeah. probably, you know, somewhere in the projects, you know, yeah. crime-ridden environment. He has a really interesting story where he tells me that when he first came to America, he was shocked because, you know, a lot of people painted America as this beautiful utopian paradise, but then he came to Brooklyn in the 80s and it wasn't the utopian paradise no. that he expected it. But the point was that a lot of people who were raised the way you and I were are yeah. raised, when we now enter into the world and people understand that this is a game of the lions and yeah. the antelope, A lot of people are taken advantage of and they're bullied and they are really destroyed by those individuals because they haven't been prepared with the tools and resources to be able to combat these individuals. Yeah, very much so. Um, I remember my first jobs were basically in New York. I started working in journalism and magazines. And I was sort of shocked that people were like not really who they pretended to be. They were kind of always sort of thinking about, you know, their own careers. And it wasn't about creating a great magazine or newspaper. It was all about themselves. And then one time uh, I was, one of the more memorable experiences for me, I was taken to lunch by an editor, the person above me, after I had done this article for them. I thought it was a very good article. And he basically told me that day, he, he was, he was, kind of an alcoholic he was been drinking he said robert you should you're never going to be a writer wow you should give it up you you just don't have the discipline you don't have the skills mm. go to law school don't you you're never going to become a writer you just rem- do you still remember his name no i don't uh, but the magazine <laughs> the magazine was it called attenzione it was a magazine about italy but for americans where is it at now oh it's long gone exactly that's what you get for <laughs> doubting robert green <laughs> well he, he was kind of someone who was on the downside of his career but you know i was like 24 25 when i heard that and it was really kind of a shock and really kind of hurt i got over it fairly quickly but those kind of things were, I think it really came from a place of envy on his part. But when you're young, you don't know why people are saying things like that. You don't understand that it actually doesn't, is not an objective opinion that he's giving. It's, he's got a political, he's, he's manipulating, he's acting out of his own envy or whatever. But you don't understand that when you're young. And so, you know, I had a lot of experiences like that in the work world. I, I didn't have a father like yours who told me, this is what it's really like. 
I had to learn by some painful experiences. And this kind of goes into the laws of human nature because one thing that you began to experience from firsthand experience was the truth about human nature. And so for those who don't know about the book, can you explain to them why you decided to write The Laws of Human Nature and what that book is about? Well, basically, I wrote it because I noticed that people were having a lot of problems in the world. I, in Mastery, I had a chapter on social intelligence. And the idea was that in order to be really great at your career, I don't care what it is, you also have to be good with people because we're a social animal. So you might pay a lot of attention to the skills that you develop for your career, the information that you need, the various skills and techniques that go into being good at it. But if you're terrible with people, if you don't understand the political nature that exists in an office, for instance, you could be Albert Einstein, but you won't get anywhere in life because you're going to always be stepping on your own feet by by inadvertently offending people and losing allies, etc. You're going to have a miserable life. So I wrote a chapter on that, and people really resonated with it. They said, Robert, it's a great chapter, but I want more. I want more. And I realized, going back over the last five or six years, that people are slowly losing certain skills when it comes to social relationships. I don't know if it has to do with technology, if it has to do with Internet, with people spending way too much time <clears throat> on their smartphones <clears throat> and not enough time dealing with other people. Something is going on. And I also do a lot of consulting work with people who are very powerful and successful in business. And I would see the same problems over and over again, the same patterns. I hired this person. I thought they were going to be great. They were going to be my business partner, and they ended up stealing the company from me. Or they ended up being completely incompetent, and, and, and the costs have been enormous. And so I sort of realized there's a problem going on in this world where we have basically all the tools for understanding people, understanding who they are, for observing them, but we don't use these tools. And we're going around kind of blindly. We're misinterpreting the actions of other people. And if you don't know the people you're dealing with, if you don't understand your colleagues, your boss, your children, your spouse, it causes so much pain and so much misery in your life because you're always dealing with dramas and conflicts and you don't know why. And you're going, is it me or is the, everybody against me? No, it's just human nature. People have certain qualities, certain qualities such as they, they're emo we're emotional animals. People react emotionally. We have egos. We have self-images. We're essentially self-absorbed. Um, we feel envy. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others. These are kind of fundamental elements in people's nature. And the better you understand it, the, the better you'll be able to deal with problems that arise. When some toxic person is about to enter your life, you read my book, little antennae will pop in your head. And before you get involved with them, you realize this person is a raging narcissist. Mm. This person is grandiose. This person is very aggressive. I'm not going to get involved with them. So I wrote the book to really help people on a much higher level deal with, you know, interactions with people. And that point really resonates with my, not only my story, but I think the story of a lot of our, a lot of people who watch our show is because there's this thing where I used to say, 
we all project our intentions and our upbringing and our values and virtues onto other people. Definitely, definitely. And so if you're an individual who was raised in an, in an environment where cheating is wrong, stealing is wrong, hurting is wrong, you then begin to assume that everyone else is playing by exactly. the same rules. Exactly. And my dad had this funny, funny anecdote. Turn into my dad's episode. <laughs> but he had this funny anecdote where he he would tell me that if his uh, mother would watch basketball, it would blow her mind. And he said the reason why it would blow her mind is because she wouldn't understand why the opponent steals the ball. <laughs> She's like, I, 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 you know, no, you can't steal. That's wrong. <laughs> you know, because in the in the way they were raised, you yeah. do not steal. <laughs> but in certain games, yeah. stealing is okay. Oh yeah. And if you're not aware that stealing is okay, your opponent will use that against you. And people will use that against you, Definitely. and then you'll be at a disadvantage. Right. And one of the beauties in your book is that you you help individuals be able to see, man, the, some of these games that other people are playing is not the games that you and I are playing. Right. And so what right. what do you think are some of the, the the games that other individuals are playing that take advantage of people who are lesser than? Well, um, you know, not all people are bad. I don't want to give that of course impression. Not, of course not. Let's say you have you're in an office with 20 people. All it takes is one person in that office who's very manipulative, who's very Machiavellian, who's out for him or herself to ruin the whole dynamic or to ruin your life, okay? And the main problem that you have, and I mentioned in the laws of human nature, is that people who are like that, they don't go around with a sign saying, hey, I'm aggressive, hey, I'm a narcissist. They've learned to disguise it from very early on in life. So when we're children, we develop certain strategies for, for protecting ourselves and for advancing ourselves in the world, right? And these strategies we generally carry on throughout our lives. You know, me, I was sort of an introvert as a child, was kind of shy. And so my strategy was learning to observe people from a distance so that they couldn't hurt me. But people who are toxic, who come, who have deep wounds, who have certain problems, perhaps from their family, they learn when they're six, seven, eight years old that they have to disguise it. If they show the fact that they're only thinking about themselves, they'll have no friends, the teachers will hate them. So they learn how to appear charming, how to appear friendly, how to smile, how to seem like they're your, your, your best friend. And then only later do you realize they're not at all what they seem. So they assume a mask. And so the problem that we have is that even you could be you know, very aware, you can listen to your father who gives you great advice, but you're taken in by these people. So like a narcissist, you know, like, look at our president, who's probably the most raging narcissist (laughs) of them all. People like that can actually be quite charming, because they've learned at an early age to be very extroverted, to get a lot of attention. They're really good at getting attention. They have charisma. It's only after you get enmeshed in their lives and you get start working for them, they become your boss or your colleague, do you realize that the only thing they care about is themselves? So, you know, you can't go around in life being paranoid. You can't go around thinking everybody is against me. But you have to develop certain sensitivities. You have to be able to pick up the signs in advance that some people have an agenda that is basically very selfish, that they could hurt you in the end. You know, one of the worst things is envy. I have a whole chapter on envy. I also have chapters on envy in 
the 48 laws of power as well, because it's a huge theme. People never announce that they're envious. They never come and say, I really envy you and therefore I'm going to try and hurt you in some way. They're very crafty and they're very sneaky. You know, the man who in that told me that I was never going to be a writer, I later realized that it probably came from a place of envy. So I want to show you, here are the signs that reveal that this person is actually envious of you and you need to be very careful. So one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of people get to that point where maybe they don't, they're not able to fully point out individuals who they believe have malicious intent. Right. But they but they do believe these individuals are out there. And then they look to people in the high places in society and they see that a lot of individuals in society who are elevated before us, they have those characteristics and those behaviors. And then a lot of people begin to ask themselves, if I want to get ahead, if I want to advance, if I want to be seated in these high places, maybe I have to be able to now get into the filth and get into the mud. And now exhibiting those behaviors. Do you believe that the only way to advance is to, to exhibit some of those manipulative behaviors and to, be, and to be able to be cunning in that manner? Well, there's degrees of it. So um, I believe a good leader, if you're a really good leader, and I have a lot of stories in my books about that, you don't have to be – it's better to treat people well in the long run. You're going to get further in life. But as a leader, you yourself can't be naive because some of your employees, for instance, are out for themselves. You have to be willing to fire people. You have to be willing to recognize the bad apples. The thing I tell people in life is you need to be able to play hardball. It's not that you're going to be playing hardball throughout your life. It's not that I'm advocating it, but sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's necessary to protect yourself, to realize that this person that you're facing is manipulative, and maybe to protect yourself, you have to manipulate back to them. So one of the books I have is The 33 Strategies of War, and I talk about a deterrence, the need to deter people from harming you. So if people are very aggressive and you show that you're kind of weak and that you're willing to take the abuse, they're just going to keep doing it. It brings out the tiger in them, it brings out the lion. They're going to keep doing it again and again. You need to show them, hey, don't mess with me. You need to show them one time, you do that to me, and you're going to pay a really fucking bad price for it. Mm -hmm. Back off. Yeah. Well, In doing that, you're kind of lowering yourself a little bit. It's not something you would normally do, but it's necessary in the game of life to show people you can't be messed with. Mm. So I generally believe in the soft approach in the world today, in being seductive and charming and thinking about everybody that you're you're working with and trying to be a good courtier but at the same time you can't be naive you have to napoleon bonaparte said it's putting your iron hand inside a velvet glove mm. so people only see the velvet glove but you have a piece of iron in there mm. so if they're going to hit you you're ready to hit them back yeah. you know no and i think going back to we talked about jonathan Hyatt and his work um the Coddling of the American Mind is a great piece of literature. Great, book. great piece of literature. And one of the things that I've noticed is that one of the new virtues in the 21st century is niceness. And I've always distinguished niceness from kindness. I've always, uh -huh. I've always said 
a kind person does what's right in spite of what other people say or other people feel. A nice person does what's right as long as it makes other people happy. So they're always conforming, always doing what the other individual feels like or wants them to do. So there's this sense of this niceness that a lot of, especially, no offense to the moms, (laughs) but a lot of moms are still as the virtues they want their children to have. But then unfortunately, their children aren't developing the strength needed to combat with the lions in the jungle. And so one of the things that I've noticed, a lot of individuals who are just trying to be nice when the bullies come, they're, they don't they they think that to stand up for themselves is now not being nice and going against their values. Right. But your point is so true. Actually, the the kind thing to do is when someone is doing wrong to and a human being, yeah. especially if that human being is yourself, you need to put your foot down and deter this evil doer from moving forward. Well, I mean, think of two great icons that we always consider kind of saintly figures: Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Both of them realized that there was incredible injustice in this world. For Gandhi, it was the English, getting rid of the English in India. For Martin Luther King, it was obvious the whole civil rights movement, etc. And in both of men's lives, they came to a point where they realized in order to have justice in this world, they had to be tough, they had to be strategic, they were surrounded by people who were extremely Machiavellian. If they just laid down and, and were nice, they wouldn't realize their goals. And there was a key moment I talked about Martin Luther King a lot in my last book, um, where, you know, he realized in one of his campaigns, I think it was the campaign in Birmingham, I can't remember exactly, where his whole thing was to project, to, to reach the wide audience through television to show them the violence that was really going on in this world, to stop being so isolated from the realities in America. And he realized it wasn't hard enough. So an associate of his said, look, We've got to do something stronger. We've got to get children involved in our next campaign. We've got to get 14, 12 and 14-year-olds involved. And they may get beaten because there was this horrible sheriff named Bull Connor mm-hmm. who was going to, like, beat the crap out of them. And we're going we're gonna to make 12, 13-year-old kids suddenly be vulnerable to this kind of violence. And Martin Luther King said, yes, we have to do it. For the greater good, we need to reach those people, those sleep those people in the white America who are asleep, we need to show them the reality of the violence. And he okayed a strategy that was actually people really criticized him later for. You know, he realized we have to be tougher about this. And he was somebody who was extremely strategic. He was never mean. He was never manipulative. But he's exactly what I'm talking about. He treated people well, but he understood the tough part of life and the tough game you have to play. And when it came to it, when when the stakes were high, when it was about real justice, he was willing to play the game that way. No, and that's good. And that's, I think, the answer to that first question I was saying is that you don't have to be the overbearing tyrant to be successful. Right. But you have to be able to battle the overbearing tyrant and be successful. Definitely. And you're going to be facing that over and over again in your life. It's never going to get easier, you know. There's always going to be people in your path. It's always going to be selfish people. There's always going to be people who do things that surprise you, and you go, wow, where did that come from, et cetera. The other thing I've noticed with nice people is they can't take criticism, right? That's a very important life skill, to be able to get outside of your ego 
and when you're young or especially to listen to people who have criticisms about you so that you can improve yourself. And if you're always used to everybody being so nice and polite and friendly and assume that everyone's on your side, when somebody actually does come and criticize you and say, look, this is what's your problem here. This is a flaw. You're going to, you're just going to crumble like a cookie or something. You, you have no inner strength. Yeah. And so this is another thing, quality that people who are raised only to be nice and to always be polite, they're not used to the, they don't have an inner resilience of toughness. How does one develop that inner resilience if you were raised in that environment where you never developed hard skin? Well, it's only like through the experience that you're able to to get it, you know. And I, I think it comes down to, you know, in the moment that you hear criticism, like I heard when I was 24, 25, it hurts a lot. There's nothing that's going to help you, that protect you. My words aren't going to, I can't, I don't have any magic strategy. It's what happens a week later. It's what happens a month later. It's what happens six months later. Do you internalize the criticism? And do you say, oh, I'm just a bad person, I can't, I can't, or do you say that person is evil, they're rotten, etc.? Or do you want to learn from the experience? Mm -hmm. And so you have to be willing, you have to have the attitude that I am going to learn from my experience. And it's the lesson in all of my books. There's a famous Roman uh, ancient philosopher named Marcus Aurelius. I love that guy. Oh, okay. Sto well, yeah. I'm a big Stoicism fan. Okay, so you know Ryan Holiday? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Have you interviewed Ryan? Funny story. I sent him a bunch of emails. Ryan didn't, Ryan didn't respond to me. <laughs> oh, I'll, get, I'll see if I can get him to respond to you. Oh, I like, I like you, Robert. <laughs> okay. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, anyway, Marcus Aurelius said when two people are fighting in the boxing ring and they're going at each other and they're clawing and hitting each other, the one person who gets hit doesn't go, you're a bad person. I don't like you. Why did you hit me? You know, something is wrong with you. No, you realize that's just part of the game. Well, the game of life, our people are going to hit you. They're going to claw you. They're going to scratch you. They're going to bite you. It's just the part of life. Mm. And instead of taking everything personally, you have to see that it's like a gladiator battle and that some people are bad, some people are good, some people are not, are in between. But stop taking everything personally and try to learn from it. So if you make a mistake, what you want to do, if you have failure in life, something didn't go right, you want to have the, the ability to look it inward and say, what did I do wrong, mm. right? And, you know, a lot of people can't, don't have that inner strength. Mm. But if you want to be successful, if you want to get ahead in this world, if you're tired of not having any kind of movement or advancing in, in, in your career, you have to develop the skill. You have to be able to look at yourself as if you were somebody else, mm. as if from the outside and say, Here's how I could improve. Here's what I did wrong the last time I did it. You know, I made many mistakes in my life. Um, I did when I did the book with Fifty Cent. Uh, I had a version that I came out with, and the editors go, "This isn't good. We don't like this," and they canceled the book project. After, oh wow! After I was working on it for months, and I felt devastated. And then I uh, figured out, you know, they're right. They're right. The book isn't good. I've I've done something wrong here. And then I talked with an editor and we were able to sell it to another publisher and we were able to figure out what was wrong and go from there. And I fixed it. But if I had gotten all, oh my God, the world is terrible, it's their fault, et cetera, I would have never gotten this book that I'm very proud of. But I was able to step back and say, no, the book I wrote sucked. Mm -hmm. I have to improve. I have to do something different. 
that's not easy, but you have to develop that skill in life. You have to force yourself. Yeah, because it's so easy to drift towards nihilism. Because right. what you're what you described is that it's like once you learn the reality of the world and you see it in all great villains and stories and movies and right. television shows and ancient tales, is once you see the realities of the world, a lot of people then just gear just go to nihilism and they just say well right. if it's if this is just bad and what's the point i don't care what right. was me everybody sucks everybody's against me and you begin to become so cynical right and what i'm hearing from you is that that's the wrong approach that's the unhealthy approach right. to be able to, to to turn to nihilism right but is instead of to kind of run from the realities of the world to embrace it right and to build yourself up right and to learn that though th though there are dark times and though there are dark people there's also good times and good people right and that's one thing i like that you talked about you know is that because i think some people it's easy to go for one extreme of human nature and say, well, all human beings are perfect blank slates who, you know, and left in the perfect utopian society will never hurt it fly. You know, to go from that extreme to the other extreme, that like human beings are just the worst monsters who just want to rip everyone's head off. Right. To be able to see the nuance and the balance of the two. That's and that's right. one thing that I, I constantly see within your work is right. that you're constantly showing the duality of humanity. Right, right. Um, you know, the book, The Laws of Human Nature, is... You know, at first glance, you go, this is kind of negative. I'm talking about envy, narcissism, grandiosity, um, you know, self-sabotage, uh, the dark side, etc. But each chapter I point, these are qualities that are kind of very much enmeshed in us. We all have the potential. But each of these qualities can be turned around into something productive. Mm -hmm. We have a higher self. I say we have a lower self and a higher self. And in your life, you, not Hafiz, and other people, you can recognize this. Your lower self comes out when you eat junk food, when you play, you spend two days just playing video games all day, when you don't get your work done, when you're lazy, when you're not nice to people. You feel kind of bad. You feel kind of ugly and rotten. You may not admit it to yourself, but something doesn't feel good about it. But when you have discipline, when you spend three months getting in really good shape and you get better habits, when you complete a project, when you work well with other people and get something done, you feel you're tapping into that higher potential that each human being, every single human being has. And so we have these two sides to us. It's just that that higher self that is in everyone tends to be weaker because that animal part of our nature comes out really easily right if you're not careful you know if you just never thought if you never went to the gym it's kind of easy you know you just stay home it takes effort it takes oh damn i have to go to the gym again yeah. right you have to be painful i have to like run etc but then you feel better for it in the end but that part is weaker than the animal part of our nature mm. so you can't people aren't just born good 
they aren't born disciplined. It, these are things you have to develop, but you have the potential for that. Yeah. So in uh, Christian theology is this concept of the flesh versus the spirit. Right. And somebody once told me it's kind of like this idea of two wolves that live in you. The higher self is wolf A and the lower <laughs> self is wolf B. And whichever wolf that you feed is the wolf that gets the most strength. And then in times of difficulties or in times when you need to either walk in the higher or lower self, that's what's going to manifest itself. Right. And that's the one thing that, you know, I've seen just in all honesty from my life, that sometimes when you live in too much comfort and, and you know, without too much conflict, you know, when you're so angry at the world and, you know, hurt by the world that you retreat into isolation, you then begin to feed that lower self a lot. Right. You know, and then whenever you do go back into the world, you experience difficulty, you just go right back to isolation and right. more back into feel, feeling the lower self right. and never being able to have the strength to overcome right. and the strength to persevere through difficulties and, and, and the strength to be a leader, be the type of person who they write history books about. And so... What would you say are some things that an individual can do to strengthen that higher self? Well, um, first of all, you have to recognize it in you. It, has, it can't be a complete mystery. You can't be sitting here listening to me or to you and say, what is that? I mean, it's an intellectual concept. I have a higher self, but you have no, it doesn't mean anything to you personally. It has to mean something to you personally. And usually when you were a child, somehow, or even when you were older, you have moments where you, you did actually bear down and work on something. Mm. You did actually overcome your weaknesses. You got tired of lying around the house. You felt unsatisfied by playing games all day. You read a book and suddenly you were stimulated and it excited you. You have to be able to look back on those moments where that higher self came out. Mm. Um, in my book, Mastery, um, I have... Uh, a story about a man, Cesar Rodriguez, who's like the last decorated fighter pilot in our history. He fought in um, Desert Storm, the first one. And he he said that um, he he was like, he's like five foot six. And he became the quarterback for his team. He grew up on the island of Puerto Rico and they play football there, American football. And, you know, he was way too short. He wasn't fast enough. But he learned that through discipline, by working out harder than any of the people who were much more gifted, he could raise, become actually the quarterback of this team, and he did. And years later, when it became to be a fighter pilot, he was in school with all of these, what he called golden boys, mm. who were much more talented than he was. Mm. And he remembered back when he was in high school, how hard he worked and how he beat all the other people out because he worked harder than them. And remembering that, he was inspired and he applied the same thing to becoming the best fighter pilot. So if you have memories like that, if you can remember where you rose to the occasion, where you actually got something done, you know, like when you're, when you're working on a project that excites you, whether it's something in school or it's something in work or even with friends, you feel like you're taken outside of your ego. You feel like you're one with the work. You're actually enjoying it. You're not self-absorbed. It's an exciting feeling. It's kind of like a high. If you can have moments like that to remember, then you can build on that because you know I have the potential for something great. But you have to have these moments. It has to come from within. There has to be an emotional connection to this desire 
to contact the higher self. You have to feel it in your gut. It can't be just this intellectual thing. And I think if you were raised as a, you know, as a child, your parents probably hopefully gave you those moments. It could be in sports. It could be in academia. But you have to remember the, 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 night, the great feeling, the, inner, the fulfillment that you had in reaching that. I like to compare happiness to fulfillment. You can get happiness and pleasure from, from getting drunk, from playing a game, etc. But you're not fulfilled. It doesn't leave you the next day with a good feeling. That Greek eudaimonia? What's that? The, the Greek word eudaimonia? Yeah, mm-hmm. right. So you, you become addicted to it and you want more of it. But fulfillment, when you actually do something and accomplish something, you feel great a week later, a month later. It's much more satisfying. And you need to have moments like that in life. Instead of, are you oriented towards getting immediate pleasures? Is that the only thing that matters to you? What I can get to drown out my, my pain tonight? Or are you geared towards something longer lasting? Do you want a kind of happiness or pleasure that, that can sustain you over weeks or months? That's sort of what separates people who are able to become disciplined and control their emotions and actually make something great from those who will never be able to rise to the occasion. No, that's good. And something that stood out to me that you said earlier that I'm, I'm curious into um, hearing a little bit more of your insight in is that you said when you were talking with 50 Cent, one of the things that he shared with you is that the music industry was so much more cutthroat than being in the streets and being in the drug world. Why do you think that executive that that music corporate environment and places like that are some of the most cutthroat places and wicked places in the world? Well, um, whenever there's a lot of money involved, people become a lot greedier, sharkier, manipulative, Machiavellian, whatever word you want. When the stakes are high and there's a lot of money, the wolves and the sharks come out. Mm. And even somebody who's mild-mannered like myself or like you can suddenly feel that pull, mm. right? There's a lot more at stake. And the music industry, at least in, when 50 was starting, it's a lot different now, there was huge amounts of money to be made. And traditionally for all musicians, but much more so for for black musicians in this country, they were massively exploited. So people in the music industry realized that we can get these people to work for us, make millions of dollars for the record label, and basically they're going to be kind of, you know, at our beck and call. We can do whatever we want with them. We have the power. They don't have the power. And we can get rid of them if they start getting too big of an ego. Mm. And so, you know, what prepares you in life for dealing with that kind of thing? Mm. Not much. And the mo- when, when the 48 Laws of Power came out, it was a very big moment in, in, in the music industry and hip-hop and among the black community where people were thinking, I don't want to be the pawn for these, mu- for these music executives. Mm. I want to own my own music. I want to own my own business. I want to be an entrepreneur. I don't want to be serving them. And so they were, a lot of them were starting their own labels. They were starting labels inside of labels. And they were learning to play the same kind of tough game back at some of these really sharky people. But I noticed the same thing in Hollywood. I worked in Hollywood for many years. When the stakes are high, when people are making millions and millions of dollars on one project, it can bring out the animal in anybody, you know? And so... and. And everything becomes about your ego. And 
is this person making more money than me? Is this person have more power than me? And the power games just become a lot, a lot more in your face. The thing that 50 told me was when he was like dealing drugs on the streets of Southside Queens, yeah, it's dangerous, but you knew, you understood the game. You understood this guy there, this dealer, he's bad news. He's going to rough me up. I'm not going to deal with him or I got to be careful, etc. So you kind of understood the sharks from the people who weren't. In the music business, you had no idea. Some guy will befriend you and say, I love you, 50. I want to be your agent. I want to do this and the other. And then the next moment, stab you in the back. You had no idea who you were dealing with. And that was sort of very shocking to him. No, it, 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 and that's something that somebody else told me about one of the biggest challenges is that it's one thing to go into the jungle and then to see a lion. Oh, this is, this is a point that I won't say this person's name because I want him to get mad at me. <laughs> but somebody gave me this beautiful point. And he said, the thing about going into the wilderness and seeing a lion is that you can look at that lion and say that he's dangerous. You go into the ocean and you see a shark. You can look at that shark and you see that he's dangerous. You go into a boardroom, you go into any place and you see a human being, you don't know at all. And that human being can be a man, be a woman, be young, be old, be sweet, be callous, whatever it may be, and can be even more dangerous than that lion or that shark could ever be. And that's something that I'm hearing that you're saying. And one of the beauties, which is why you got to get the book, is that your book equips people to be able to see these things because most people are oblivious to it. Yeah, I have a chapter, very important part, and it's actually throughout the book, but I have a specific chapter on nonverbal communication. And what I mean is people can say anything with their words. They can lie in your face about who they are, about their intentions. In fact, a lot of times when we say something, we're not really revealing what we actually feel. Mm. Oh, you look great today. Oh, I love your screenplay. In our head, we're thinking the opposite, Mm. right? But the body doesn't lie. Nonverbal communication doesn't lie. It's very hard to lie with your smiles, with the look in your eye, with your body posture, and with your patterns of behavior. Actions and nonverbal stuff reveal people. So even those people in the boardroom that you can't really recognize, they if you're attentive, if you're observant, if you look at the clues, and I have stuff on that on how to recognize people who are... So one of the worst things are people who are insecure Mm. because a lot of people turn aggressive and envious and ugly because they're very insecure about themselves Mm -hmm. and their way of protecting is to attack other people Mm -hmm. out of insecurity. Mm -hmm. So people who appear to be very macho, very aggressive are actually riddled with all kinds of insecurities Mm -hmm. and those kind of insecurities are revealed through their body language. Mm -hmm. So I tell you, you go into a boardroom, a meeting with very powerful people And this one man, generally a man, tends to present this very aggressive front. And yet you see that his foot is shaking like this or something about his body language doesn't match his words. You realize this isn't that he's playing a game. He's trying to disguise all of these weaknesses. And so therefore, if you can recognize that people aren't nearly as powerful and intimidating as they actually are, then in their presence, you don't get emotional. You can calm yourself down. You can say, this, this person, this Donald Trump, is actually a weak little child. Mm. He's actually very insecure. I'm not going to fall for his bullying tactics. Mm. 
So being able to observe people better is actually the best defense that you can have in these shark-infested environments. I love that. And so two um, questions in closing. The first question is, out of all the 48 laws <laughs> of power, which law would you say is your favorite or, or has resonated the most in your life and then why? It's a very difficult question, but um, I often talk about Law 48. It's the last one, Assume Formlessness. Um, it's an idea that comes from Asian philosophy and Sun Tzu and even Bruce Lee, if you will, being like water. Um, and the idea, <coughs> excuse me, is real power is the ability to adapt yourself, is to not be rigid, is to constantly adapt to what the circumstances are and to change your game up and to realize what worked yesterday isn't work today and that who I was yesterday isn't who I want to be tomorrow. It's to be formless mm. and to be as fluid and adaptable in life as possible. Mm. And... Um, I can't say that I I use that constantly, that I am the icon for that. But <laughs> in my books, I never try and repeat the same book twice. Mm. Every book is different. Every time I write, I'm trying to think differently. I'm trying to think, reach different readers. I'm not trying to just simply play off the success that I have with the 48 Laws and write 48 Laws of Power Part 2. <laughs> I'm writing something very difficult, different. And I'm challenging myself. And I'm realizing, for instance, as you get older, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a young guy anymore, mm -hmm. that you tend to get set in your ways. Mm -hmm. You tend to um, feel like you know everything. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always challenging myself to open my mind up to what's going on among young people, among millennials. I have a chapter in my new book about being aware of the generation of the zeitgeist that you're living in. Mm, and so that kind of formless approach to life, I think, is... One of the, to me, one of the most important laws in the book, and it's the last law. And one of the things I say in that chapter is, people don't understand this, kind of ironic, but I say, um, don't just listen to what other the advice that other people give you. Sometimes do the opposite of what they tell you. Mm. And I'm saying that about my own book, mm. that maybe don't just apply, don't, just don't think that Robert Greene has all the answers. Mm. Maybe do something completely different. Be formless in your own way sort of thing. No, that's that's a really fascinating point because this kind of leads into the, set. the last question is I was listening to an interview with Malcolm Gladwell and, you know, so many people, you know, swear by outliers, the way they swear by your book. And then, you know, they were talking to Malcolm Gladwell about one of the principles in his book. And Malcolm was like, Oh, I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> and the, and the person was like, "What do you mean you don't believe that? Like the, like that 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 principle is is my mantra in life." He's like, "Well, you know, I believe that back then, and now I don't believe it anymore." Right. And what is and it was such a really powerful point because these authors, one, aren't deities such as yourself, you know, that anybody with a platform, we're still human. Right. And the beauty about being alive is you're always growing. Right. When you're dead, when you're dead, it's when you stop growing. Right, right. And so, one thing that I've always noticed is people are always evolving, they're always growing, they're always changing. Right. There may be things in the past which they believed that now is like, well, I don't, I may, may, may not believe that anymore. Right. What would you say is the biggest thing that has changed? Something that you may have written in the past, or a principle that you had abided by, but now after much reflecting and in your wiser years, that you're like, you know what, I don't agree with this as much, and 
you guys need to rethink this as well. <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I, obviously when you get older, you tend to like soften a little bit, right? So um, I've had so many bad and difficult experiences and you can actually get a little bitter too. You can go the other direction. Yes. But I've kind of tended to soften a little bit. And so it's not that I think that things in the 48 Laws of Power were wrong. I stand by that book. I think it reveals the truth about what's going on in the world with what powerful people are very much like. But um, I start putting more of an emphasis on things like empathy, which is a major theme in the new book. So people have this idea that um, I no longer believe in the 48 Laws of Power. There might be some ideas in there that, you know, maybe I would revise a little bit after all of my experience. It's not so much that I I don't believe in it anymore. It's that I've, I'm not so harsh myself. Mm. I believe that, you know, there's so much ugliness in the world and so many people who are self-absorbed and selfish that we need to be aw more aware of the higher self mm. so that we can develop it. So it's I'm putting more of an emphasis on that in my books, and I will be doing that in my next book, um, than on just looking at the ugly side of people. You know, so that's sort of the main change, because I feel like um, what is missing most in the world isn't our ability to manipulate; it's is our ability to understand other people. Mm. You know, you're talking about roommates in diverse worlds. We're now entering a world where in your office. People are going to come from all different backgrounds. They're going to come from different countries, different cultures. We now men have to deal with women who are bosses. Women are entering the workforce. People are coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds. You have to be able to be sensitive to the differences in people. You have to be able to understand what motivates them, what their world is like, how they feel. And that's a very powerful emotion. So I'm putting my emphasis more on that in, in my books as I get older. I wouldn't say wiser, but maybe mellower. Okay. Well, well, no, that's really good. I think that's something that the world is lacking. And for you to be able to provide that next generation with that, and to me, it's kind of like that divine balance, whereas the first half of, you know, I forget the, the Taoist yin-yang, I forget which is which, but the power is, you know, really that masculine, and now the empathy is more the traditional feminine, so with right. this perfect balance that right. I feel like is going to really help a lot of individuals. Yeah, I think that's very well put. Thank you so much. Well, well Robert, thank you so much for opening up your home oh. um, to us. Thank you so much for sharing with our audience so much wisdom, and mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of things they're going to get that they're going to apply to their lives mm -hmm. and it's really going to strengthen them for their people who want to reach out to you where can they reach out to you at well i have a website that i've had for forever it's called power seduction and war.com the and is spelled out so power seduction and war.com and there you'll find links to mastery to the 50th law to the laws of human nature you'll find links to my twitter instagram facebook and also there is a place where you can email me your criticisms or your praise or whatever you want to send me. So sounds, that's the best place. Sounds great. Guys, you know how we get down on the podcast. Be sure to reach out to Robert. Let him know what about the podcast stands out to you guys. And also shower him with just all the 
kind words. <laughs> no criticisms here. Keep the criticism yeah, nah, to yourself. You, you, you criticize me. I have tough skin. <laughs> yeah. So, Robert, thank you so much. My name is Hafiz, and I'm joined by Robert Green. And we got a roommate, guys. Thank you so much. And you guys have a great day. Thank you, Hafiz. That was great.